0: Heritage Explains listeners, since the very start of COVID, like most podcasts, we generally have seen a lower number of people listening. And it makes sense because we know a lot of you listen in your cars while you commute to work. But in the last month, we've seen a lot of people come back to the podcast and even an increase from where we were before COVID. So first of all, thank you. If you're new, haven't listened in a while, or have never done it, we'd love for you to leave us a five-star rating or leave us a comment where you listen. When you do that, it really helps promote the podcast and helps us reach more people, which, of course, is the goal. So before we start, go ahead, pause the episode and go do it. Leave us a comment, rate us five stars, or just share us with your friends and family. So again, thank you so much for listening And now, on to the episode. From the Heritage Foundation, I'm Tim Descher, and this is Heritage Explains. A few months ago, we did an episode responding to the beginning of the left's call to make mail-in voting the standard for voting throughout the entire country. Our guest, Hans von Spakovsky, walked us through why voting by mail is a potential recipe for election disaster.
1: In every single state... You can vote by absentee ballot if you can't make it to the polls. But what's going on here is that the progressive left wants to get rid of all of the security measures that are in place to try to cut down on fraud. That's why, for example, Pelosi's bill would have said you have to allow vote harvesting in every state. In other words, you have to allow candidates and party organizations to come pick up your ballot, which is which is a horrible idea. We should leave it up to local authorities to decide what is the safest thing to do. Can they open polling places? Should they not open polling places? Should they just have uh, an absentee ballot election? What's the best way to handle it? It depends on local conditions and we ought to leave it to local authorities to make that decision.
0: Now, that was back in April. And while much of the same coronavirus concerns remain on both the left and the right when it comes to voting, the conversation has morphed and shape shifted into much more. It's like a snowball rolling downhill and getting larger and larger the longer it goes. The latest is a full on accusation that President Trump is going to use the post office to deprive people. Of their right to vote. Man, we thought the pressure was on back in April. Get a load of what's being said right now by members of the left and the liberal media. Here's a portion of a montage put together by our friend Mark Levin on his show, Life, Liberty, and Levin.
1: We're on to everything he's doing. All of this seems perfectly planned to uh, disenfranchise people. That's absolutely
0: what this is. It's incredibly widespread. It's affecting every single uh, region of the country. If he
1: does not win, he's going to say uh, that it was a fraudulent election. It is a massive effort at voter suppression in front of our eyes. Quite frankly, if you keep this slowdown happening, people will die. i talking about mortality because of this postal crisis. He is, in effect, putting his knee uh, on the neck of American democracy. This will be the shame ...of the Republican Party for generations. This is a crisis. It is terrifying. It is absolutely disgusting.
0: So is all this true? Is the president actively trying to disenfranchise voters? Is he trying to deliberately make sure the post office cannot process an all-male election? Is the left correct when they say the Postal Service can... Handle mail and voting. And how about this? Can the left and right at least agree that voter fraud is a serious issue? Well, this week Hans von Spakovsky is back and joins us to discuss. He's a senior legal fellow and the manager of the Heritage Election Law Reform Initiative. This week, he brings us up to speed on where we are with election integrity throughout America. Hans, it is so good to have you back on Heritage Explains. Thanks for being here this week.
1: Well, thanks for having me back.
0: Okay. Once and for all, put to bed the confusion about the difference between mail-in voting or all mail-in voting and absentee voting.
1: Sure. In 45 states and the District of Columbia, you can vote by absentee ballot. That means the vast majority of people vote in person in their neighborhood polling places. But You can also vote by absentee ballot and the way you do that, some states you don't need an excuse, others you need an excuse like you're too sick or physically disabled to make it to polls. And in those states, you fill out a a one-page form. It's very easy to fill out. You sign it, you send it to election officials and then they send you your absentee ballot. Uh, Five states have switched to all mail ballot. In those states, uh, there's no in-person voting. Uh, They simply mail. A ballot to every single registered voter and then you have to get it back to polling officials
0: and of course that leads to a whole different thing uh, of of voter identification checking and fraud and all that stuff which we covered in our last episode and I'm going to link to that into the show notes we can get into that but right now I want to dig a little bit deeper Um, and and that goes to kind of what's being talked about right now with the United States Postal Service Um, in your recent piece In Fox News again. I'm going to link to that in the show notes. Everybody, a lot of information will be posted there, so please log on. Um, You said in the 2016 election, almost 130 million Americans voted. Does anyone really think the Postal Service will be able to suddenly handle 260 million pieces of additional mail? That is the ballots being mailed out by the election officials and then mailed back by voters. Right, and and then. I, I stumbled across a piece in The Atlantic, which says, and I'm going I'm to do a direct quote here, Hans, because I, this is important for you to respond to. It says, from a sheer numbers perspective, none of the experts I spoke with doubted that the Postal Service could handle a vote-by-mail election, even if one of the nation's more than 150 million registered voters stuck their ballot in the mailbox. As one noted to me, a presidential election might be a big deal, but in postal terms, it's no Christmas. What do you think about that?
1: Well, I suggest that those experts and the uh, writer at The Atlantic haven't read, for example, the Inspector General report. This is Inspector General of Postal Service who recently released a report on the 2018 election in which he said that the goal of the Postal Service with regard to absentee ballots, so that they, they call those um, uh, election, election mail, their goal was um, to have a 96 or 97 percent effective rate. In other words, they would be delivered on time, which, as you know, being delivered on time is very important with, with uh, mail-in ballots, because if you don't deliver them on time, you're, you're too late. They're not going to get counted. Their goal their goal, was uh, uh, 96 or 97%, not 100%, and they achieved widely varying results depending on where you were in the country, but the goal that they received was a, a little over 95%. Now, that may sound pretty good, except when you think about it, that means that 5% of the mail-in ballots were not delivered on time. Uh, 5% of, uh, let's say, 100 million ballots, that's a heck of a lot of ballots that may get rejected.
0: That could swing an election.
1: not counted. Yes, absolutely it could. And anybody who thinks this isn't a problem, uh, just take a look at the recent New York primary, where there is now litigation and huge fights over the fact that election officials rejected one of every five absentee ballots returned to them.
0: Here's my question as I was preparing for this interview that kept going across my mind, and I'm sure you've heard this from many people. You know, what if in this all-male voting uh, push that's being perpetuated by people on the left, what if someone has a, a question about their ballot? You know, like, do they have to log on to the Internet? What if they don't have the Internet? You know, do they have a one eight hundred number they can call? You know, when you vote in person and you have a question, which I actually have had questions to my ballot right. that I've been able right. to ask a polling worker. You know, how do they propose that we deal with that? And then doesn't that propose additional issues?
1: Oh, listen, uh, you've put your finger exactly on the big problem with absentee or mail in ballots. Look, the rejection rate of absentee ballots is much higher than the rejection rate of of, uh, ballots cast in a polling place But for that very reason. If you're in a polling place and you have a problem, everything from a problem with the registration list to a question about how to fill out and fill the ballot, et cetera, there's an election official there who can answer your, your questions and try to remedy the problem. There's no such election official in people's homes. And so many ballots get rejected because um, voters haven't, for example, properly filled out the information that's required uh, with the absentee ballot when you send it back, um, or they have forgotten to sign the ballot, which unfortunately happens, or they have other problems because they're by themselves. There's no election official in the home to answer their questions.
0: A Washington Post memo claims. And, I, and I'm going to repeat the word. They claim that recent changes have been made at the post office, including cutting back overtime and also that uh, postal workers have been instructed to leave mail behind at the post office. Rather than to make extra trips, you know, they claim this is, you know, causing delays and will cause further delays. And they're kind of getting at the point that this is an attempt by uh, the Trump administration to, um, you know, mess things up for uh, a, a vote by mail election. What do, what do you think about that?
1: I, there's just, there's just no facts to support the claims they're making. Look, the, the whole problem with the Postal Service is that... Um, Look, it has been badly run, badly managed, badly organized for years, and anytime anyone has proposed any kind of a reform to try to make it a more efficient operation so that it can run effectively the way private companies are run effectively, like Federal Ex- Express. Um, those have been opposed by uh, the, the postal unions, a number of which represent postal employees. Um, you know, one of the claims that's been made is, oh, all these um, all these postal boxes where people deposit mail are are being taken away and eliminated. I, I saw a number that during the Obama administration, something like fourteen thousand mailboxes were eliminated. That has nothing to do with the election. It has to do with the fact that um, the volume handled by the postal service has been going down every year. As people have switched to private services again, like Federal Express, and using um, using the internet, and when a a particular uh, uh, post office box, when the number of envelopes deposited in it gets down below a certain minimum level, they eliminate the box, and that happens all the time. It has nothing to do with the election.
0: One of the resources that you have spearheaded here at the Heritage Foundation is the election fraud database. And this is right. the website, folks. And we've mentioned it in the previous episode, and I'll link to it again now, that that basically tabulates all of the cases of election fraud that have taken place, I believe, since the year 2000. And it's super useful, folks, if you want to share with your friends and just to educate. But some of my friends, and I, I read this in another article that's out there, Hans, um you know, it said that there's not enough evidence to deter vote by mail. They just they said, you know, it's just doesn't have enough cases to make the case that we can't rely on an all voting system. Now, I'm curious to know what your response is to this, because we, we put a lot of weight in our voter fraud database.
1: Well, first of all, um, if people need to understand it's just a sampling of cases. Okay, it is not a comprehensive list. I I don't have the staff and the resources, and there's no central database anywhere to find all of the cases. Um, Second, these are only proven cases. These are cases where someone was actually convicted in a court of law or a a, uh, court ordered a new election. I know of numerous other uh, cases of potential fraud that prosecutors refused to do anything about. And when I say I know about other cases, I'm talking about thousands of other potential cases that prosecutors basically refuse to do. So people need to understand this database is just the tip of the iceberg. The largest number of cases of one type of fraud, unfortunately, involve absentee ballots. And it's for the simple reason that I think it's common sense to anybody, you don't have to be an expert in this, to understand that they're the only kind of ballots that are, are voted outside the supervision of election officials and outside the observation of poll watchers, of either, either political party, it's not a, this is not a partisan thing. So that makes them more vulnerable to being stolen out of mailboxes, to having signatures forged, to having folks go into people's homes, campaign staffers and others, to pressure voters to vote a particular way, to actually fill out their ballots for them, all of which has occurred. I can cite you case after case where that has happened. And it's like, why would you want to have everybody switch to a form of voting that makes fraud easier to commit and that has the problems of potentially your ballot not getting delivered or not being delivered in time by the US Postal Service, as opposed to you being in a polling place where election officials can make sure you're not pressured, where they can answer your questions, and where you yourself are putting their ballot in the ballot box. You don't have to worry about whether the Postal Service may or may not deliver it.
0: What happens if we don't have election results uh, by the time inauguration comes around? I mean, we know we know Whoa. that it was delayed. We know that it was delayed in court back in 2000 in Bush v. Gore. But, you know, now this we're at a point where if we're relying on all-male voting, we could potentially see a big delay. Like we saw, like you mentioned, New York, we see in New Jersey, there's problems, you know? So what, what is, what is the likely outcome of of a delayed election result?
1: But that really is the nightmare scenario. I know people talk about 2000, but remember um, we, the delay there was a, was less, uh, was about a month. But look, if New York took six weeks to count its primary election results just recently And remember, the turnout in the primary is much less than the turnout uh, in the general election. It's lower. Um, Think about that six-week problem all over the country. And think about it taking not six weeks, but longer because of the higher turnout and because states are simply not equipped to handle a huge increase in um, uh, mail-in ballots. Yeah, we we could potentially get to Inauguration Day. It's never happened in the history of the U.S., and still not know who has been elected uh, president because the outcome still hasn't been determined. And it could be a relatively small number of states, one, because they haven't finished counting the vote or two, there's litigation,
0: right? Legal challenges, of
1: course. legal challenges over the outcomes because of the high number of ballots that have been rejected by election officials for various reasons. Uh, there's actually a federal statute that applies to this. Um, if if the if the House if the elections to the U.S. House actually you know have been done, and they've elected re-elected who their speaker is, which right now is Nancy Pelosi. Under that statute, the acting president of the U.S. is the speaker of the U.S. House, and she remains the acting president until the outcome of the presidential election has been determined.
0: That's so funny. I heard Trump, uh, President Trump mentioned that last Friday in a speech, and he kind of posed it as a question. So that's actually true. It could be it Nancy Pelosi is president. Right. Oh, my gosh.
1: <laughs> oh. You know, and I had folks say to me, oh, yeah, but but uh, maybe it won't be Nancy Pelosi. Well, excuse me, but look, in the, her last congressional election, Nancy Pelosi got 86% of the vote. So I don't think it's, good, it's going to be too tough for them to figure out that she's won her congressional race and, and you know, her chances of getting reelected are probably almost 100 percent. So yeah, the possibility is there. I, I, look, I hope that doesn't happen. I hope we have a clear cut election, whoever it is that wins. Uh, there's no doubt about that and that we don't have endless litigation over it. But unfortunately, that is a possibility.
0: Well, Hans, I, I'm so appreciative of you giving us your time. You are all over the place right now, and so to have, you know, fifteen, twenty minutes of it is is a, is a big deal. So thank you so much for being on Heritage Explains this week.
1: Well, I appreciate you having me.
0: Thank you so much for listening to Heritage Explains. As we said at the top of the show, we really appreciate you coming back to the podcast, listening, sharing with your friends and family, rating us, leaving us comments, sending us an email at managingeditor@heritage.org. It all matters. It all helps. So thank you so much for that. Don't forget to check out the show notes because Hans has been working overtime on this issue and I've linked to all of the work that he's done there. So there's a treasure trove of information that you can access by looking looking at the show notes. We will see you next week and we can't wait.
1: Heritage Explains is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is produced by Michelle Cordero and Tim Desher with editing by John Pop.